Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen, and a co-host on the Southeast Asian Studies channel. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by Aim Simpeng, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the University of Sydney, and the author of Opposing Democracy in the Digital Age, The Yellow Shirts in Thailand, which has just been published by the University of Michigan Press. Aim, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. So, Opposing Democracy is the first book-length study of the Yellow Shirt Movement in English. It draws on lots of fieldwork, interviews, numerous Thai language sources, and especially it draws on lots and lots of social media posts, including reams of Facebook data, both in terms of subject matter and source materials. Opposing Democracy is a landmark project that opens up new vistas of research. This is a topic rather close to my own heart too, but I'm going to try and resist the temptation to editorialize and jump into talking about the book. So, Aim, how can I put this exactly? The yellow shirts have had a bit of a bad rap. Most scholars of Thailand's politics don't seem to feel very well disposed to them and have tended to dismiss both the PAD, the 2006 to 9 anti-Taxan movement, and the later 2013-14 PDRC. Why did you decide to write a whole book, your first book, on these anti-democratic groups? The yellow shirts were actually all my neighbors, um, right. part of them in my family. And so the story of how I got started on this started at home yes. and started around where I live, where I used to go to school and where my mom worked, for example. Mm-hmm. So it didn't come from a perspective of someone who is not intimate with the subject. Actually, mm-hmm. I was totally intimate about the subject and it didn't come from the perspective of animosity at all. Right. It was curiosity. It was familiarity. Mm-hmm. And, and it was something I was perplexed by. And as I mentioned in the preface as well, I was working for the Taksin government at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was when the yellow shirts started to surround the government house and they were sitting outside a lot, protesting on the streets. I got to listen to them uh, out on the streets as well. Mm-hmm. And knowing a number of people from my own communities who had organized and mobilized to, to go attend the protests. So for me, I just wanted to find out more, I, both from my, my own personal circle, but also outward. Who are the yellow shirts and what did they want? Yeah, I mean, really, we're looking at these two main movements, the PAD and the PDRC. So maybe we should focus first on where it all started with the People's Alliance for Democracy, the PAD. Is it possible to see the PAD as expressing a sort of single, coherent ideological stance, given the really very different wings of the movement, ranging from Santi Lim Tongun's kind of 
egomaniac opportunism to Jamlong Siemung's anti-corruption obsession via Pipop Tongshai's civil society activism, Somkiet Pongpai Boon's Democrat Party alliances, and Somsak's rewarmed state enterprise unionism. I mean, one single thing that unified them all was how much they hated Taksin, right? right. <laughs> that was that was pretty much what they were about. Just like any large-scale movement, they're very diverse. There are many different groups inside, different voices, some louder than others. Even the top leaders were very different. They Absolutely. came from very different backgrounds. They held different beliefs, and they barely could hang on together. One thing that really binded everyone together from top to bottom and across time was how much they hated Taksin. Mm-hmm. So the question for you, Duncan, obviously you've written many works about Taksin, was what is it about him that they hated mm-hmm. him so much? And there was clearly some personal animosity, but I think... They really didn't like what he stood for or stood in the way of, basically in the way of of them. Taksin was taking power away from them, taking their voices away, taking their spaces away. And because of how Taksin was as a leader, about how he was quite a different kind of leader than Thailand ever had, I think a lot of the people didn't know how to deal with him but to rise up against him. At the end of the day, if you ask, what does it mean to be a yellow shirt? Within a few seconds, the name Taksin would come up. Much more so than about the monarchy. Right. Yeah. Now, of course, if we look at the five figures whose names I rattled off, Santi himself honestly seems rather similar to Taksin in his personality and orientation and also made a transition from globalization to nationalism at the end of the 90s. And Jamlong, who, you know, I have to confess, I wrote my PhD about Jamlong Simung and a book about him too. Uh, he was a big sidekick of Taksin. He handed over his political party to Taksin and worked with him for many years before turning on him. So what was it about these people who seemed actually to have a kind of affinity with Taksin that they did this 180 degree turn? I would say that most of the leaders, it was all strategic decision. It wasn't ideological by mm. any means. I would have to say that the most ideological one would have to be maybe Jam Long, just because of the Buddhist principle behind who he later became. But honestly, the, these were all strategic decisions yes. that the leaders made for their own gains and together, right? I remember probably one of the most important interview that I had with the leadership was really about whether or not they would support a military coup. Right. And I think them looking back into those days and those decisions, there was a lot of disagreement among themselves too about whether or not they would support such things. As, as you've noted, many of them came from the left, mm-hmm. but were prominent figures in the 90s, uh, civil society organizations where they really, really hate dictatorship. Yeah. And how did they live with themselves, basically, those decisions they made? How did they get themselves across the other line? Said, you know what, we would rather have the military dictatorship than Taksin. How, how did they even get there? I think some of them reflected on those decisions and they felt that they were in a position where they had no other option but to accept this lesser evil, which I think many of them regretted that decision too. Right, because if we go back, most of those key leaders were actually important figures in the May 1992 anti-Suchindar movement, which was precisely against (laughs) 
the power that came from a military coup and they end up to some degree facilitating or endorsing another military coup 14 years later. Yeah, uh, what an irony, right? So I think that says something about the movement, right? That the key decisions made were all strategic decisions. Mm -hmm. There were choices made on purpose. It wasn't inevitable at all. And up until I think the very moment when the coup happened, things could really go either way because especially with the PAD, I think the PRC was much more anti-democratic. So the Mm -hmm. PAD was really borderline, you know, like, do we and it's a lot of it had to do with the way Taksin react to them trying to negotiate some kind of bargain as well. If Taksin had had been more compromising, things yes. could have gone very differently. So a lot of it was really contingent. It wasn't that they were really gung ho about the military at all. And I think mm-hmm. they got a bad name, especially the leadership that somehow they were in full support dictatorship, but many really reluctant. And the interesting part of the interviews that I got from the leader was that there was the royalist wing and the Buddhist wings of the PAD that were really aggressive and really vocal and forceful about accepting the option of let's endorse a coup. And at one point, Somsak actually mentioned that if we didn't endorse the coup, we would have lost our grassroots support significantly. Mm-hmm. And you see that story repeating itself in a larger scale with the PDRC. Yes. So it's almost like the crowd was way more anti-democratic than the leadership. Right, yeah. Now this this brings me on to the equally intriguing, the leaders are sort of intriguing, but equally intriguing or more so are the followers. And I also had the opportunity at various points to go and observe both the people PAD and PDRC demonstrations. The striking thing was that most of the people I saw were middle-aged, and a lot of them mm-hmm. were women having the time of their lives yeah. taking part in these events. It became a huge social activity for certain kinds of people. How do you mm-hmm. account for the appeal that the PAD and later the PDRC leadership had for these groups of supporters, many of them not young and uh, not men? And we, t- we tend to think of you know, political protesters in a Thai context as being definitely male and often younger males. Yeah, I think that's a regional variation. So yeah. significant supporters of both movements really draw on the supporters of the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. And there is a split of that too, if they're from the South or if they're from the East. I know that from the South, where they would be bus up, they would mm-hmm. get on buses up to Bangkok, there were more male, but there were more female too. And this has something to do with the seasonal workers from when they're off the rubber farms and they would come up. But in the East, this is really clear. So in Eastern Thailand, like Shonburi, for example, most of them were small business owners. So it's a matter of who in the family was going. Small business owners have different reasons for why they don't like taxing. Sometimes it's a personal thing. It's a bad for business. Sometimes it's, it's just in general. Usually they send the women up, either the men or their children stay behind to look after the shop mm-hmm. or something like that. And the women like to go together. They get the, the vans to go up together. Right. So it's a social thing for them. So it's just a family decision. So women were able to free up some of their time that they're not washing their shops to go yes. or have somebody else. And then they go. And, it, and you see that to some extent with the red shirt as well. If it's in the South, what I noticed was it relates, you know, whether or not 
they were in seasonal work, but it's also linked to the local networks of brokers of the Democratic Party too. And Democrat parties, even the MPs themselves, would you know regularly visit the protest side to check on their own constituents, right? Even though formally right. they're not together, but we all know that's not true. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've already brought this up. The PAD over time spawns a non-identical twin. It's a doppelganger, the red shirt movement. How do you think the yellow shirts and the red shirts differ as movements? Because they do, as you've already mentioned, have so many characteristics in common. Looking at the organizational aspect, I think that the yellow shirts were much more mobilized along party lines more more established party lines, especially the Democrat Party, than the red shirts were when I observed mm-hmm. them. The red shirts were all supporters of Tarak Tai. But still, I think that the the networks mm-hmm. of the Democrats were deeper and more traditional mm-hmm. as well with generational voting for the party. Yeah. So I think they have it way more established than the red shirts. The red shirts seem more ad hoc and mm-hmm. less tied to established political party than the yellow shirts appear. I also think that uh, another critical component was if you're thinking about the movements between 2000, the, the first, the PAD, there was a heavy reliance of the PAD using satellite dishes. Yes. And starting to get more on the internet, but definitely mm-hmm. satellite dishes. And I think that's that's a son, son tasting, you know, he, right. he was losing lots of money, but he was giving that away was a critical component of that. And I think that as a result, they're better organized, but also they have their own sort of media channel that is much more concentrated. Whereas I think the red shirts had to come up with their own. And yeah. so there's multiple of them going on and they're less organized. So I remember hanging out at Imperial Department Store, mm-hmm. which became like a red shirt headquarters in Bangkok. Right. And you can just see that there's so many different little groups inside the red shirts. I feel that the yellow shirts were were more coherent, even though Mm -hmm. they were just better organized. And later on, when social media uh, became a critical component to the organization, you can really see how much better the PDRC, even later in the PAD, got on and leveraged the social media than the red shirts. Mm -hmm. Way faster, much more organized, much better at using images and using campaigns online. I never really got into this in my book, whether or not that was a function of them being a little better off in terms of socioeconomic status. I don't think so. I don't really know why. They just had better experience with more established media organizations. So when social media came on, they're just able to leverage it better. Yes. Obviously, I do have my own views on the subject. In in summary, I'd say that the red shirt movement is much more factionalized than the yellow shirt. Mm-hmm. And if you went to a typical Isan or province, you would find seven, eight different red shirt groups who didn't actually necessarily really talk to each other very much mm-hmm. and were kind of rivals. Mm-hmm. And most of them were tied to particular local community radio stations that were competitor radio stations. So this kind of diversification of media outlets was a strength yeah. at the community level. But when it came to coordinating coordinating themselves. Yeah. That's kind of a problem. Yeah. You're right on that. That that can definitely. There are these fascinating parallels and similarities between the two movements. But to cut a long story short, I mean, the PAD failed in a sense. Pro-Taxin parties still won the 2007 and 2011 elections that followed on from 
the 2006 coup? And then it all comes back again, or does it? How far can we see the 2013-14 People's Democratic Reform Committee as something different from the PAD, or how far do we see it as PAD2, a sequel, Groundhog Day? What's the relationship between these two versions? What are the differences and similarities between these two movements? That's a great question, right? The the similarity is their intense hatred for Thaksin and Thaksin's cronies. And that's basically it. PDRC came about, there was a little gap period where PADs kind of die. And then I think to understand the birth of the PDRC, you had to understand the death of the PAD. And I think the PAD died because they decided that they wanted, as a movement, they wanted to enter formal politics. And and when part of the movement established a new political party, they just lost their direction, right? It's sort of like, what do we do? After the coup and when Thaksin's parties came back in my election, they had their longer protest days, right? But the crowd actually started to get smaller, not not as much, and then get really, really small. The the more single-issue-based campaigns they use, things like Bravery here, kind of conflict and not about taxing, basically. So when the PID died, there was a vacuum of multiple people sort of wanting to continue this vengeance against Thaksin and capitalize on this heightened royalism. And then I think the key difference then is that the PDRC is essentially the street version of the Democrat Party. Right. I mean, it included a lot more alliances, but the Democrats sort of decided that it's not going to survive as it's a normal political party. It needs to operate at the street level much more formally. And therefore, we're going to do this and we're going to capitalize on this. And I think. The, at the beginning, when the PDRC came about, there were multiple protests going on. And, and you mm-hmm. wrote about this. You just published an article about this. Mm-hmm. Multiple protests going on at multiple stages with different groups. And it wasn't even clear at all mm-hmm. that Lung Gamnan Sutep was going to be yeah. a leader. Right. right. And so the question is, how did he even become a leader? He wasn't even a popular politician, right? He, he, He's was, like, no, you know, he had a negative, you know, a bad image. He kind of brought yeah, down the first like, Chuan government with allegations totally. of corruption about Sopoko Sisuning. And he wasn't right. an appealing guy to the no. public at all, especially no. the Bangkok public. He's 250 years old, you know, been around the block <laughs> right. like a million times really is not very good at social media and he did get boo off the stage. So how did he reinvent himself? And so what the Democrat Party really did was to utilize, and this is again really getting back to the issue of organizational ability to mobilize masses. They really used their party machines and media connections and networks and leveraging social media to actually amplify how much better the movement would be if Suteb would become a leader or and his crew. Mm-hmm. And so there was this moment when other leaders of you know more kind of civil society groups and st- even student groups came together and there was all like seven, eight stages going on in Bangkok. Suteb kept coming and be like, we really need to coordinate this. And there was a lot of, oh, I really don't want to deal with you. Like a politician with really bad rep. But then the reality hit, and this is the same kind of reality that hit the leaders of the PAD was in order for us to move forward and be a formative force and actually make real change, we need to 
get behind the one person who can make this happen. And they look around, like who has the most organizational resources, ability to get people going, get the math. And it just is to tape because he's got the party machines behind him. Look at the interviews of the leaders of different groups. We had to get behind the tape. Um, We were losing momentum. We were losing direction and we Mm -hmm. were everywhere. It's exactly kind of the same dilemma that some of the NGO leaders face when Sonti came on board in right. with the PAD, he said they really didn't, no one liked him, but he's got the media. He's got people watching his show. He's got the resources. So what do we do? But unlike the PAD, the PDRC decided that they were going to let the Democrat basically take hold of most of what was going on in that movement. Whereas with the PAD, they at least tried to appear, there was, you know, five leaders from different sectors. And, right, there were. He was the most powerful, and they all admitted that. So he yeah, was the most powerful. Exactly. He, the most say. The he always spoke were, last, right? <laughs> yeah. And even the other four leaders were like, Sonti never really hang out with the the people on the streets, he didn't like the smell. He just didn't no. want to be with... Sute was much better with that. Sute would get down and dirty, sweating. No, he was totally on board. He could do that for sure. Right. Yeah, but not Sonti. So I think comparison-wise, ideologically, or at least how they portrayed themselves, the PDRC was a lot more clear about mm-hmm. opposing democracy than the PAD. Right. It was also a lot more clear that it was driven by a political party. Yes. And it was way better with social media and leveraging that. So I think the similarity was that both movements hated Thaksin and they used Buddhism and the monarchy to garner grassroots support. Right. And I guess another similarity that you've alluded to in the case of the PAD is that each of them tried to create a political party and run in the subsequent elections and got absolutely nowhere. As soon as they tried to move from being a protest movement to participating in the parliamentary process, they were dead in the water, essentially. Yeah, because then people didn't understand what do you stand for? You know, right. I think that was a big part of the movement that was really anti-party, exactly. anti-establishment, but then they're not anti-establishment at the same time. Right. Not in the Western European sense. Indeed, indeed. So you've already started mentioning social media aspects, and that's clearly one of the most important parts of the book. It's right there in the title about the digital age. It's difficult for me often to get my students to read a whole book. I can tell you that chapter seven is definitely the one that has to go on the reading list where you talk about the anti-democratic or the pro-coup groups that you studied on Facebook. Could you say something about how your reflections on social media and your mining of all that data contribute to the analysis that you offer in the book? So at the time, when I started starting the yellow shirt, there was no social media per se and didn't really become a critical component in the Thai society until 2010, 2011, maybe 2012. So I think it was really great that I was able to follow the same movement before social media and after social media. And at the time, 2011 was this critical moment in the world because There was so much hope that social media was going to be great 
yes. who was really going to bring down democracy with the Arab Spring 2011 to Ria Square. And when we were looking at this and subsequently what happened to Thailand, I think at the time, there was just a lot of positive hope that it would really help. So the PDRC is one of the earlier examples of how things can go the other way. But if you're looking at the digital politics literature, the public opinion regarding the role of social media in relation to democracy didn't really turn around until 2016 when Trump got elected. But 2014, 2013, Mm -hmm. uh, 2014, very clearly Facebook in particular were used to really enlarge the anti-democratic voices in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And I think this whole echo chamber effect was really clearly demonstrated that in a politically divided society like Thailand, where it's already so politicized, Mm -hmm. when social media comes into these kind of society, it's not likely that it can bring the two divisions together, but more likely you see the divisions remain or deepen. And then the deepening of that is demonstrated by this chapter. And I think to see that effect on the most important social media platform in the country and, you know, in the region is really fundamental to that argument of social media is not going to fix what is already wrong Mm -hmm. in terms of political division. It will, it could probably make it worse. I mean, in terms of the detail you go into in, in Chapter 7, you talk about the wide range of different groups that were operating within this broad space of supporting the coup and maintaining a kind of anti-democratic discourse during the NCPO period. Do you want to say something about that as well? Sure. So I was interested in, to figure out, because everyone always talk about the pro-democracy groups, but what about the anti-democracy groups, especially online, right? Like, oh yeah, well, you had the coup, so now what are you going to talk about? So looking at the largest supporters of the coup and the PDRC in general before and after the coup, after the coup really demonstrate why they really supported the movement, Mm -hmm. because before the coup, there was one goal, right? Get rid of the government, Mm -hmm. however possible. But once that's achieved, then what is it about? So to see the breakdown of the different kind of interests of these groups really tells you that the PDRC was not that unified. There wasn't a lot to hold them together other than to get rid of a threat. So once the threat's removed, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. And so there's all these divergence. And so it sort of demonstrated that the movement came together to achieve an ad hoc goal. But this wasn't going to structurally change the society because Mm -hmm. there was just not enough in common. Right. There were groups that would really love the military because they're the pro-military groups drawn from military families. They're very socially conservative, very Buddhist. But some groups were drawn to the PDRC because they really didn't like Thaksin and his cronies. But other than that, not much. Some groups were drawn in because of Buddhism, but after the threats removed, what does the Buddhist group have to do with the I hate taxing group? There isn't yeah. much going on. So to see there wasn't a lot of cross communication across groups after the coup really signifies that the group came together just to achieve one thing and then there wasn't a lot going on. But, and I didn't go to this in this book at all, but mm-hmm. 
So then I start, uh, and this is something I would love to do in the future research was, in, but then the coup government themselves had needed to maintain popular support, especially online, right? While they're in power, even though they're too power by force. So if they couldn't rely on some of the PDRC to keep them going because mm-hmm. it wasn't enough, what can they do to maintain support? So you start to see 2014 was when information warfare really started in yes. Thailand. Info ops, a lot of the I Love Brayut's group uh, started mm-hmm. to prop up. The most popular one was the one where he was portrayed as a comedian because uh, Thai people love funny things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see the softer side of him. People share images of him being funny and that's the popular group. So that's a new group that may be drawing on some of the people from the PDRC, but they were not aligned with the PDRC at all. So in some ways, a lot of the groups that were part of the PDRC before the coup kind of lost support and mm-hmm. widow out. And then, but then you see new groups emerge that were created specifically to support the Prayut's government and that yes. continued onwards into the election. So in summary, Post-2014 coup, you see this integration of the PDRC because there wasn't a lot in common uh, to hold them together. You also see new groups being created because Prayut and his allies knew that they couldn't count on the grassroots supports of the PDRC to also support him. Right. They had to create new groups to do that. Right. Now, obviously, since the 2019 election, we've seen a whole new round of street protests, which you and I have already been working on. We've done articles about in this recent issue of Critical Asian Studies. How do you think the latest round of political protests initiated originally, at least by student groups from 2020, how does that relate to the protest movement phenomenon that the PAD and the PDRC represented? I think that a lot of the students make reference to their parents being yellow shirted Mm -hmm. and that they had grown up being intimately involved in some ways with the red and yellow conflict and that rebellion against the yellow shirted parents and what they believed in really brought back the discourses about the yellow shirts that I study Right. I felt in an interesting way, right? I mean, they could they the the word Salim, for example, has been used yes. around for now a decade. It was used to talk about the yellow shirts in a negative way, mm-hmm. but even before the PDRC was established, but somehow that didn't impact the mobilization or even the establishment of the PDRC. It was sort of like, yeah, you call us Salim and we'll just call you Kwai mm-hmm. Dang or what happened, right. stupid red buffalo. Right. But now that it's being used by the younger generation, often referenced to their their own family members, their own parents, I felt that what the yellow shirts believe or the anti-taxin part of it, it's sort of slowly drifting away. And it's left with just being very ultra-conservative socially and politically, being very Buddhist. So... To think about the yellow shirts now and how do we understand the yellow shirts in relation to the student protests, I feel like there isn't the discourse is sort of moved away from it. The current protests talk about the yellow shirts only from the perspective of antagonism 
and perspective of rebellion against them, but not in the perspective that they really understood what the yellow shirts really stood for. Yes. You know, um, there was a huge part of the yellow shirts that were not slim, that they thought that they were really fighting to save democracy, that they're really fighting against a tyrant who was, yes, democratically elected, but still a tyrant who was bullying against NGOs, was bullying against journalists. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that had been lost in the current discourse about the yellow-shirted parents, about the slim, about why they needed to fight against the period government. So I feel like this book, I hope that it can make a contribution to reconnect the current sort of generation understanding of what had happened 10, 15 years ago, which I felt is just too simple to say that there were conservative ultra-royalists. That's not really what the Yellow Shirts were all about. There were a lot of different groups in that. And to bring back how the Yellow Shirt got started, the opposition to Thaksin was real and in the democratic spirit at the time. So I felt that we needed to better understand that because we're still dealing with the same problems, right? <laughs> right. And the, the younger generation need to understand that the, their parents' generation sided with the yellow shirts for many reasons other than the mm-hmm. fact that they may not probably love the monarchy. That's just one and not even the, the biggest reason of why you know, the yellow shirts got together, both the PAB and the PDRC. So I'm hoping that that, if this book gets read by Thai people, hopefully mm-hmm. that they can have more well-rounded understanding of the yellow shirts. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I'm somebody who's always saying that we need more nuance and that reductionist explanations are typically too simplistic. And if we go out and really talk to people and try to understand their motives, we'd often find that their motives are more complicated and ambiguous than they might seem at a casual first glance. I think your book is an important step in the direction of reminding us that, yes, the origins of the PAD and indeed the PDRC were complicated. They were messy. People came from different points of view. They weren't all unified around a single agenda and a very sort of simplistic conservative ideology in the way that they are often caricatured. So to me, it's a very important contribution. Thank you. Where do you go next, Dame? What's your next big project? My next big project is to understand the information operations, you know, that Uh really started in 2014. Yes. And the kind of discourses that were created and how the social media space was being manipulated to promote particular narratives and they're colliding now and that collision really it had its roots in 2014 so i wanted to better understand the origins of the information operations but also the kind of digital culture that developed since then that had led us to the 2020 protests because somewhere along the line People starting to create new spaces on Twitter, for example, right. because they were they felt that they were being too there was too much surveillance on Facebook, and then suddenly you see a bunch of students showing up on the streets, and I think a lot of people, especially their parents' generations, just scratch their heads like, "Yes, how did that happen?" <laughs> right. I think a lot of it's going on on Twitter and in right. some extent Facebook in the secret group for for quite some years. So I I want to get back where I left off, but focus much more on the the cyberspace, but never losing touch with people, you know, because 
I think the best part about the the, the book was still, and I agree with you, it was through the interviews and mm-hmm. talking to people, right? Right. I mean, no, nothing beats that. You you get that human connection that you can understand them a little bit better than just reading their tweets. Yes, I have to say, for me, that's what it's all about. And it's been much more difficult, obviously, over the past year or so to have that direct access to in the kind of informal conversations you can have with people in person, but that's really got to be important. But that sounds like an incredibly exciting next project for us to look forward to. Thanks so much, Aim, for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope we've inspired lots of listeners to read Opposing Democracy, which is a, a really important book, just chock full of fascinating research insights and, as we said, nuance, ambiguity, and complexity, which is what for me, at least, Thailand's politics is really all about. Thank you for having me, Duncan. Thank you. I'm Duncan McCargo, and I've been in conversation with Aim Simpeng about her important new book, Opposing Democracy and the Digital Age, The Yellow Shirts in Thailand, which is just out from the University of Michigan Press. You've been listening to the New Books Network, Southeast Asian Studies Channel. <laughs>